Welcome to the Foundation Podcast. My name is Simone Scott and I'm going to be sharing some South African stories of hope with you. My goal is to give you more information about the great things that people out there are doing to improve our country. For this episode, I'm going to focus on some of the people who are trying their best to preserve and fight for our natural environment. It's probably only fair that I warn you up front that this will be quite a long episode. It's a big topic and I met with several people to learn more about what is happening in this space. For the scope of this particular episode, I chose to focus on rivers and the work being done to promote their health in KZN. Well, because that's kind of where the story led me. Today's episode will also be the final one in this season and it's kind of fitting because it holds a special place in my heart. So I'm really excited about the episode um, for a few different reasons. Firstly, the issue of the planet is something that I've always secretly cared about. But if I'm honest, I felt disqualified from caring about it because I'm not living a particularly environmentally friendly, plastic-free, vegan kind of life. It always seemed to me that to make a proper difference, you would need to get a bit drastic. And it just didn't seem within my reach. Throughout last year, that's 2019, I was lucky enough to meet a few people who started to change my perspective on this. And who taught me that even small changes can make a difference. If all of us choose to do a few things differently, it could actually help the situation. Another reason I feel so passionate about this episode is because the story all started with Paolo Condotti from the Clue of Conservancy. I featured him in last week's episode as well. And you may remember that he was the first person I ever interviewed for Foundation. So I guess for that reason, the story will always be special to me. It came about because of the thread I followed after my first conversation with Paolo that day. So part of the reason I was so interested in this issue is because of my own recent subtle change in feeling around things, that maybe I don't need to be perfect to make a difference. But another part, a huge part, had to do with the flood we experienced over the 2019 Easter weekend in Durban. The flood itself was obviously devastating, with the last stat I saw claiming that over 85 people lost their lives. This is not even to mention the people who lost their homes and their property. It was terrible. Another terrible thing about this flood was the havoc it wreaked on the marine environment. I still remember being sent an image on one of the many WhatsApp groups I'm a member of. The picture showed the Durban Harbour and it actually didn't look like a real photo. There were so many plastic bottles floating in the harbour around the ships you couldn't even see the ocean anymore. I refused to believe it at first, but then I realised that this was actually true. This was what the harbour looked like at the time. Beach cleanups were speedily organised and I took part in my first ever beach cleanup after that flood. I joined the Blue Lagoon team. Hundreds of random people gathered on a Saturday morning to tackle this big task. We were there for hours, but we barely made a dent. I saw whole families out there. Some small businesses had even brought a team of workers and tackled the debris in a more strategic manner. I heard one man tell his team to focus only on plastic bottles. My friend and I actually focused mainly on picking up bottle caps because we were collecting them at my office for the Sweethearts Foundation. Side note, if you collect enough of these bottle caps, their recycling partner issues you with a wheelchair that can go to someone in need. Anyway, we left that site after several hours with not only two and a half packets full of bottle caps, as well as, surprisingly, six milk crates. We'd also cleaned up countless other plastic items, like snuff pots and toothbrushes and so on. We'd even found a baby car seat. 
It seemed that the problem was far greater than a few people giving up of their time on a Saturday, putting on their oldest clothes and a pair of plastic gloves and getting to work. When we left South that afternoon, it felt like we'd barely made a dent, despite our aching bodies and our hunger pains. It was hard not to feel discouraged. It was also hard not to think of the bigger picture. And even though we definitely accomplished something, and it was great to see so many people committed to this cause, it still left me thinking about the severity of this problem for days after the fact. So this was something I mentioned in my first pitch email to Paolo. Do cleanup initiatives like these actually make a difference? I mean, in this case, it was clearly essential because the city would take ages to clean up all of this mess on their own. And it still took ages with all of this extra help. But maybe there was a way to address the problem at an earlier stage, to avoid it getting this out of hand. Kluf, I think, is, is very, very active. Uh, we have a number of, of very, very good projects running. Uh, did you manage to get a look at the Ella? Because the Ella addresses Ella River project. Yeah, because that addresses essentially what you raised in that email. I'm very much against cleanups, and, and, and that's what actually sparked the whole... Another, another flooding at Blue Lagoon, another million tons of plastic, another crowd of volunteers going cleaning up, patting themselves on the back at the end of the day. Great job done, guys. Next weekend, the same thing happens again. And we said, we don't want to do this anymore. We're fed up. So let's see if we can change the behavior of where the the stuff originates and we've started uh, in uh, in Claremont we just said let's pick one spot inland and we picked Claremont because Claremont has uh, a, a very very interesting how's it Bruce Hi. this is Simone is it yeah. this is Bruce is our vice chairman from Kluf he does the, he does the work <laughs> so we said let's let's see if we can Find out why is this litter happening? Why are they dumping? Can we change those behaviors? Can we work? It's a very, it's a behavior change. It's a social behavior change. Very, very good. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with the environment, really. It's, so we put a team together, which included two social, two social scientists, three social scientists, engineers like myself, uh, and some environmentalists, uh, 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 a couple of guys with, with background in the environment. And we approached the municipality, got some money, and the, basically the way we're running is we, we, we have a team of what we call eco champs. We pay them. We have a project manager and a community liaison officer, uh, and a team of six eco champs from the community that we have trained to become community facilitators. They go into the community, they go door to door, they have community events, they go to schools, they do events at schools to try and, and address the issue and find out why you're dumping, can you stop, you know. And it's, it's not just about education because it's all very well saying uh, stop dumping or this, this is, if you dump this is what happens. If the people don't have a way of getting rid of this stuff, then... And, one of, and, and we got funded by the municipality initially, then somehow Cambridge University in the UK found out about it and they funded us for a year. They came out and did research. They were doing research on the impact of climate change on youth and they wanted a project. They were linked up with a project in Mexico and one in Mongolia. And they linked up with us here, so they came for a year and, and did research on their bit, but at the same time funded us to carry on with the project. We then got some money from Lotto. And in the third phase, we now, we now we started in 2016, 17, 2017, I think we started, focusing very, very much on a small area. And that area, we think, is beginning to show signs, gradual signs. Whether it's sustainable or not is another issue, but it's beginning to show signs that people are beginning to take... Well, the, the message in the, in, the, in the project is we want to end up where people take 
co-ownership of the River Health, of River Health, not litter or anything, River Health, in partnership with the designated authorities. Because authorities have a mandate to fix things and, do, you know, maintain things. So they, they can't just say, it's the community, and the community can't just say, well, it's a municipality. So we're trying to bring those two, two, two sort of groupings together. In the, in the third phase, one of the big issues that we found was a problem in solid waste was disposable nappies, the dump, irresponsible dumping and, and basically throwing them into the river or any open ground. Nappies are a problem everywhere, uh, in Etiquini and in the, in the outlying areas. It's not a problem only in South Africa, it's a problem across the globe. And we then approached the manufacturers, Kimberly Clark, Procter & Gamble. They've brought in the parent organization, which is called Adana. They're based in Belgium. And they decided to fund the pilot project to see, let's do some research on why are these things being dumped and can we find a solution to, to solve the problem. And we came up with a, with a very, very simple solution at the end of the day. But the, the research showed that the dumping is, is happening primarily in low-income areas where there is high density. So if, you, if you've got a family living in a space like this, even if there's a municipal truck coming past once a week, you're not going to keep a packet of nappies in your tin shanty for a week. So what do you do? You toss it. So that was, that was the first thing to establish, you know, why is, why is it happening? And that's what, ha that's what it's happening. That's why it's happening. We then said, well, how can we, how can we find a way of solution? And, and we're fortunate in Etiquini. I don't know if you're aware of something called a community ablution block. Okay. In the low-income areas, the Tukwini municipality have done a fantastic job. They've built community ablution blocks in high-density, low-income areas, which basically are old the containers converted into showers and toilets. And they're very, very well maintained. Most of them are very well maintained. Certainly the ones we work with are very well maintained, and they work. So what is happening is the community have got ablution facilities available to them. And, and they have... Uh, they're managed by community ablution block caretakers, which are funded through the government's expanded public works project. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> um, so, our EcoChamp team basically interacted, did a focus group research with the, with the community. They went to moms with kids, moms to have kids, and they went to the creche moms, because the creche moms manage a lot of little kids with nappies. And basically, they came up with a solution that says, let's use the community ablution block as a collection point. For the nappies rocket science eh? you got to go to the loo so when you go to the loo take it there and put it into a bag and the lady that or the person that the community ablution block taker will take them to the street collection once a week in three months we ran a trial for three months we collected 21,000 nappies from a small small area tiny area so where we are now there are 3,200 of these community ablution blocks across the Tukwini we were working on 16 of them and we collected 21,000 nappies in three months. The, what we, where we are now, we got more funding from Edana, and now we've got the Department of Environmental Affairs involved and the municipalities involved. We not, you, that's the video you might have seen, was the Ella River project, that was the beginning one. Did you see the latest one, which is the nappies one, yeah. So where we are now is we're expanding. We ran that first project, so we managed it, we ran it. We're now in phase two, where we've gone from 16 to 44 in, in, in and we've taken on an adjacent catchment in Kwashembe, and we've also put four, bin, four tackling four community ablution blocks in um, Quarry Road 
Crowley Road West, the settlement, you know the one on Springfield Park, on the N2, very troublesome spot. So we, we're working with a the crowd there. The idea is to see, can it work well where we are, and it could be working well simply because we have such a good relation with the community, our echo champs have a very good relation with the community, that they trust them, they've, 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 they were persuaded to work with them. Now, how easy is it to replicate that? So this second phase now says, let's see if we can replicate it, if we can go beyond our little comfort zone and see if we can replicate it. At the same time, can we persuade the municipality to take it over? Because we can't run it across the city. We can't even run it in 44. You know, we can't keep doing this. It's not sustainable for us. Like a good novice podcaster, I'd done my research before meeting Paolo. So I'd visited their website and Facebook page and watched some videos on YouTube. So I'd seen a bit of info on the Aller, spelled A-L-L-E-R, River Project. But even after having carefully watched the video, it still came alive to me in a whole new way when I heard Paolo talking about it like this. The fact that people like the volunteers at the Kloof Conservancy cared enough to make that much of an effort to address the problem. That they met with the local community to get their buy-in and to educate them on the importance of river health. That they even created some part-time work for the eco-champs. All of that became much more meaningful when I heard it in his own words, human to human. Even the number, 21,000 nappies in three months, sounded so much more impressive. I was just amazed at this team of people, their dedication, and all this work that was being done that I had no idea about. The goal here is basically to remove the nappies from the environment and get them to landfill. Landfill is not the long-term solution because you're just filling up land, but at least it takes them off the rivers, it takes them off out the open land. So that project is, is one of the more meaningful projects that the conservancies have done, I would say, locally. When I asked Paolo why rivers are so important, he patiently explained their value to me, as well as why his team specifically chose to focus on rivers. Rivers are, com rivers are, are the lifeblood, really, of, of an environmental system, of an ecosystem, you know. So um, they... they, they in Durban, we're very fortunate, we have something called DEMOS. I don't know if you're familiar with DEMOS, Durban Metro Open Space System. And the idea of, of, of what happened was in the 70s, they started to research uh, the, the parks in, in, in Etiquini or the, the open spaces in Etiquini were developed under a colonial mentality. And I'm not a politician, eh? so don't, when I say colonial, it doesn't mean politics. It, it, basically, the, 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 the Brits had that, the, 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 the idea that open spaces were for the use, for the benefit of the people. Uh, and so they would create a, a nice green place where you can go and play cricket. Uh, it was nothing to do with biodiversity. They were not intended to be places where biodiversity thrived. They were intended for, to have a green space for the health of humans. In the 70s, the municipality really formed the environmental planning department. And they soon realized that they needed to protect it. The rapid urbanization in Etiquini was resulting in massive destruction of biodiversity. So, and they said, well, we've got all these green patches. Let's link them. And the linking is basically through the DEMOS system and linking is along rivers. So rivers have become quite critical uh, in terms of the lifeblood of the biodiversity system, the ability for small species to move. I mean, in this patch here behind you, we get porcupine, we get legavans, we get blue dacre, um, and they basically move along the rivers, the river course, mongoose, water mongoose, grey mongoose. So they, they use the rivers to, to, to move, basically, because that's, they, they get killed on the roads. <laughs> so there's a river down here. There's a stream, it's a very small stream. The, the, the whole network is in a very, very poor 
condition and we get very very frequent pouring of sewerage into the into the rivers in in, in, in Claremont part of the problem is also people putting nappies down the toilets putting things that they shouldn't put down the toilets block this so all this garbage gets to a point in the manhole it blocks and the manhole pops it pops and it flows into the river because it's right next to the river so we picked on rivers because those are probably the most urgent need uh, for protection and rehabilitation so we picked on rivers because they're a vital component of the ecosystem and it's under severe 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 threat at the moment all the rivers are i think there's 19 rivers 19 major catchments in the Tukwini, thousands of little rivers but 19 major and every one of them is severely contaminated every single one of them i asked paulo more about the eco champs and the role they've played in helping to train and develop these young people he's very proud of them and clearly credits them for being the ones who are actually out there making it happen they really are very knowledgeable now, you know, but we only, at the moment, because of the lack of funds, we only employ them for, I think, four days a month. It's terrible, you know, I wish we could pay them for full day, you know, full, full month. But we just don't have, we just have not been able to raise sufficient funding to, to do that. Uh, but they've been trained, they, they, you know, we have invested in them. Uh, they've gone on technical training for the mini SAS system. They've, they've gone on uh, basic uh, skills you know, using a computer skills, uh, environmental training. Yeah, so, so we have invested quite, and also facilitation skills. They were trained by, for a year, by a researcher from Cambridge. Uh, it was actually quite fascinating because every Tuesday morning they would have a Skype conference, a, a bunch of youngsters sitting in Claremont, in a municipal office, talking to a researcher at Cambridge University uh, on a Skype, and she was training and coaching them to become and she did, between her and Pandora Long, who did the first phase, they did the bulk of the coaching development for them. So now let's move on and actually hear from someone who works on the ground with the eco-champs that Paolo was talking about earlier. I met with the community liaison officer Tozeka Ntlukwane on a Sunday morning at her home in New Germany. The funny thing about meeting Tozeka is that we met up during the Rugby World Cup period. And that Sunday was a game day for South Africa. It was kind of funny that she didn't know, and neither did I actually, until someone invited me to a bar that day to watch the match. Obviously, I made the right choice and rather set off to find Tozeka to hear more about what got her into this line of work and what they do. I really, really loved hearing more about her story. She felt so lucky to be working in this sphere. She also explained that she was one of 76 candidates who were interviewed for this position. As she spoke, it was pretty obvious that she's really passionate about the environment and also that she really wanted the job because she loves working in this sphere. She even started her own company that trains people on how to care for the environment because she noticed the negative change in the world around her a few years ago. Another side note before you hear from Tozeka herself, her neighbor really loves 90s rap. So you may hear some Eminem or Tupac in the background if you listen really, really carefully. Okay, um, it started in 2016, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. And um, Paolo is working as a clove conservation, yes. And uh, I think they had an idea of taking back our, their, their rivers as a conservancy. I think they were starting to be worried about uh, the rivers. 
that uh, because the rivers is a body, you know, water body which goes down to, I always say, they goes down to the dams and to the taps and that um, a community was starting to pollute, uh, industries were starting to pollute the rivers and uh, communities were starting dumping everything they think of into the rivers. And I think that uh, to Palo, it, it pains him when seeing that. And luckily, uh, he came to, 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 to Clermont, I would say, in this community. It's where he started seeing the Ala River. Ala River, it's starting from up uh, the formal houses, I would say the suburb, and it goes to the industries and it comes to the low-cost houses, and then it goes down to the informal segment. Then that's where he had the, the, the funding, I think, that it was going to that they must start restoring and um, cleaning, clearing the river. But uh, they came to, to us, I think they started doing the interviews for the people in the area and started looking for the community liaison officer. And uh, the interviews were about 76, I think. Yeah, starting for everybody to come and be interviewed. And at that time, I think I was the lucky one and uh, because they came to our ward. The main thing, they came to the area and they were looking for people who are in the same area. Yes, to, 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 to see that they can work with that, the best team, I would say. And they wanted somebody who's familiar with that person. With, also with the environment, because the background, they were looking at, are you have a background of the environment? And luckily, I had a company, which is Big Start Training and Development. It's an environmental company where I'm accredited by local government CETA to do uh, trainings on the environment. I've got about 67 unit standards, so the modules, where I do the trainings for health and safety, about the conservancies and everything. So uh, luckily, I think I met the profile, I would say, because I love the environment. I started that company in 2008, and uh, I wanted as a, I, I won't say that as a black person, but as a person, I would say black person. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that, that uh, I wanted, uh, I love the environment. And I've also saw that there's a need, you know, for, for the people that uh, to respect the environment. And because I've, lo I've seen that uh, the ol olden days we used to, to swim into the rivers, we used to do washing. We used, even when you've got a boyfriend, we used to meet, it's where the lovers were meeting, you know, and sitting even when you go to fetch water from home. But you know that in, in the background, in the end, you'll get your boyfriend there. It was the place where you all meet and it was a very beautiful thing. Then uh, I saw that in the township we do have rivers, but there's no more anybody doing that anymore. Then also it, it started to be... Um, worried that the new generation won't have a lucky to have rivers uh, in, in close by because that was close by and also i thought about this climate change there's a lot of things which is happening the 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 the, the water it in the dams you know they're decreasing and uh, you know even our lifestyle have changed the behavior we don't care about anything about the birds 
And I always tell them that in, even my children know that in the olden days we had birds which were singing, you know, your Christmas is coming and we see the blossom, I'm coming from Free State. I would see the mountains is full of beautiful uh, flowers, you know. But I found that there's no more like that. Yeah, things have changed. I don't know that the technology is the modern, but that worried me that the earth doesn't change, but the people are changing, killing what's there, you know. Then I said, okay, I've got that company, but I was lucky to be interviewed to one of the, the people they're going to interview. And uh, after that 76, uh, and they phoned me that uh, Nick Swan was the manager and uh, saying, uh, luckily, because there were people, the, we were, there were about four, uh, uh, I would say, what, what do you call this? A group of people were interviewing. And uh, they've chose me and they said, okay, you've got it. And I was very happy. And uh, they started now because I'm in the same ward. I'm ward 22. That's where the river was going to start. Ward 22 and it goes to 92. And uh, they started interviewing now the echo champs. Also, I was there as uh, the CLO. To, to help and identify also the volunteers because the background of that also was for people who've got the background volunteering, knowledge about the environment. Out of 100 and something, 123, then we finally got our seven echo champs. They clearly used a rigorous selection process to identify the team who would be working on the Alla River project. Conducting 123 interviews to find the seven people they felt would best suit the program and benefit from being part of it. Wow, it was obvious to me that the Conservancy took this project seriously and that they really wanted it to have the best chance of a success. Another thing that stood out to me was the importance of communication when it came to making this project work. And uh, that's where we started doing a lot of trainings uh, that was Pandora Long, who was our educator at that time, and uh, teaching about the invasive plants, uh, teaching about the water cycle, and uh, that way it comes from where the river starts, from the mountain, it goes to the river, it goes to the dam. We even went to water treatment centers where we started to know and understand even the, the that the flow, you know, that it goes to the river and but it will go to the water treatment and be taken again to the river when there's got a chlorine once it's cleaned. So that's where we started knowing and understand all that for the river. And that's where we started educating now the community. Uh, we were starting uh, because we understand first and then we were taking what we know went to the community, we started telling them about the invasive plants and that they absorbed water and even to identify all the invasive plants which we had in our areas. And also when we started walking to the river, we started seeing a lot of dumping which was in the river. And uh, the education was done, we started doing education we started inviting people from within. But the, the good thing about our project, I would say that the successful of it, it is where we started working with the ward committees 
in the area and we started because you can't just go in into the area which you didn't start to going to understand your ward committees how it works started going to the ward committees councillors were involved went to the meetings tirelessly I've been to the meetings uh, telling people that we'll be, we are here, we're going to clean the river, but we need their input and also the safetyness of the echo chimes because we're going to start monitoring the river and understand what is put into that river. And we found that the manhole sewers were polluting, the, you know, overspilling into the rivers. And that was a sad thing. And we started seeing also the industries were polluting you'll find that there's pipes which they're hiding which all their chemicals into the river fish started to die organisms everything which lives in the river was dying one thing that became obvious as we spoke is that one of the main ways they hoped to achieve lasting change within this community was through education not just of the eco champs themselves but also of the larger community they focused on teaching adults and children about the importance of the environment and how to treat it. She also mentioned keyhole gardens, a way of gardening they were taught about by a doctor from Cambridge that she simply called Dr. Elsa. It seemed that this way of gardening uses less water, so it's more sustainable during times of drought. But at that time, we had echo clubs because uh, we thought that schools will be the most important uh, 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 that we can work with. Schools, we had about six uh, schools, primary schools, and two and one high school in Clermont. That where we thought, well, let's have echo clubs to start working. And each school, there was about 15 echo clubs that uh, where we started educating the children about the river, the importance about uh, the climate change, the importance about everything also. And we started introducing the keyhole gardens because we found that because of the weather, how, how it changed, you, it, it doesn't help you, you when you had a garden and you found that nothing is growing. So uh, Dr. Elsa came with the idea that at least let's have keyhole gardens, which were very good because it's the higher, you put every manure or whatever compost you put, and it's in the higher level of the ground, so that absorbs and it also has the, the moisture that the rivers will be able to, you know, whatever you plant, that it will be there, you know, it will start growing rather than going to the ground because the, the sun and the water, you'll need a lot of water by doing that. But the keyhole gardens, it, it, it will make your garden and your vegetables grow much better. Yes, we started making those keyhole gardens. They, they, they are higher, up from the ground, you know. There's a hole which we started putting in uh, and also we started putting the fence around. Every, you know, every garden uh, waste you put in there, your grass you put in there because it will stay moist. Then you'll be able to, to use a little bit of, of water. Tozeka mentioned that they realized that the sewers were getting blocked and overflowing into the river. The next step was to figure out what exactly was blocking the sewers. We worked with EWS that take water and sanitation, and that 
they are the ones who help us to open up the manhole source because we said uh, whatever it's there tell us that what it is what makes it overflow and they found that nappies they found out a lot pads they found a plastic they found a lot of things which people are using in the toilets which goes to 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 to, to that main to that main sewer and it blocks that's why we're finding a lot of flow then we said okay let's do the research and ask the people what are they doing what are they using into the toilets that's where we found out because we worked with um informal settlements that they've got this is a community ablution blocks which government have made that everybody must use and uh, we thought okay let's go there because this is closer the main hole sewers are in the river and uh, most of the toilets comes from the informal settlements it's up there to down so we started talking interviewing the the research our research to informal settlement asking them what do they put and we that's where we started educating we've gotten events which we have done that put only toilet paper don't put other things they were using stones sometimes even the 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 paper because sometimes we understand that the economy is so bad they are not using anything they use the hard paper which blocks also then that's where we said, okay, let's educate them and uh, for them to stop doing this, uh, to put the pads and to put uh, the nappies, put papers there. And that's where we found that, okay, what is the solution? Because you can't just tell the people to stop using what they do if you don't come with a solution. Because they'll ask you that, okay, you said I must stop, what I must use? What are you going to do? Then it's where we, when we're doing our focus group, because I've got a background of a research, marketing research, where I'm a moderator for other companies, then I said, okay, let's start doing moderation. But before that, we started telling that what we found, no, let's invite the people to come to us and find out what's, what's the problem with the nappies. Really, because the nappies is a very good thing because it helps convenient for them. They don't have to wash. They don't have to use water. They don't have to, you know, when you go to work it's no more like cloth of nappies which we had that was the modern days that you use uh, your for your children you know you can't say don't stop it because also the companies wants to sell the nappies it's convenient even for everything although it damages the environment then they said no it's good and then we said okay we found that into their results that they don't read the instructions, even what the company tells them outside. They said it's too much written outside the pack. And also the others were using what, you know, when you have a baby, you saw someone else using it that way. They thought that you just change your baby and toss it into the river because the river is where it's a dumping area. And we started telling them that it's, the river is a very important thing, so you can't go and dump, but we need to come with a solution. What are you going to do? Then that's where the idea that they came with the idea that if you can have a place where we can put our nappies into it, then that's where we'll start, you know, using your method or your solution. So that was the start. Now that they clearly found one of the main problems, they could work towards finding the solution of collecting the nappies in one central point, the community bathrooms that Paolo mentioned earlier. Then we said, okay. It came out from the research which we have done. And that's where the beans started. That at Paolo and them, they started talking with municipality 
and they started talking with the water and sanitation, started talking with the DSW. It was a long process, not easy. And the municipality is not the easy people to say today, you, you know, for tomorrow. Where, although we are helping them, it's a small project, but it was not easy because you made an appointment with the head, the head is not there, you made an appointment with somebody else, he will need. But the persistence of Palo, you know, they, they, they made it happen in the long run. That's where we started having the beans now, DSW beans and water and sanitation because water and sanitation had a problem also because they keep on going to the toilet, they were overflowing, the blockages, they need to go and have the, uh, the, the plumber to open that. And also we save them a lot of money, you know, that thousands and thousands of money for unblocking those pipes and the, the, the nappies. Then they started working with us and another, uh, we went to another company that uh, who's going to sponsor us with the the plastic bag, because it was not easy for a municipality to tell us that we'll give you the black plastic bag, because they had a problem also that they can't give the informal settlement plastic bags because they are not rate payers, and the only rate payer is um, it's a landlord. So, you know, a landlord will have the land for 100 people, informal settlement renting. But they can't give everybody the informal settlement backs because that's for the ratepayers. And it's only about 28 backs in three months. So, and also they said, okay, what are we going to do? We went and talked to Very Green. I think it's a company in Pine Town. Very Green said, okay, we can uh, help you sponsor our bags. It was a very tough back which was not light like you know because nappies are so heavy when you put them into the bin so they gave us those hard plastic bags and uh, we started using the plastic bags into the toilets in the bins and also then started educating people it was not easy because in uh, uh, we 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 had meets you know and they believing that you can't take your nappies for because there's a community uh, there's someone in the toilet it's a caretaker caretaker is in the toilet giving the people toilet paper or whatever but now there's that bin sitting there who's going to take that bin up it's another um, a mission because She's not going to take that bin because it's not a part of her work. Again, the problem started. And we wanted to, to know how many uh, uh, this, uh, this um, nappies are we saving from the river? Because our concern is the river. And uh, we wanted to know how many we did we save. And we wanted to collect the data because you can't just do something and we said roughly it was so much that is not a correct uh, thing which you have done so we wanted to have a correct data the problem with actually finding the problem and now wanting to solve it was that they had to find a way to fund this project every little bit of this project earlier Tozeka described how something as simple as finding a black bag to actually put the waste in and someone to carry that bag out of the communal ablution blocks became an obstacle to their overall success but that wasn't the only problem they had. They had to be able to pay salaries to keep employing people to keep this project running. 
It was clear that the, that the project was changing things for the better, but how could they keep it running with minimal funding? But it was not enough uh, for us. And now we started thinking that, okay, we have saved the, 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 the nappies. And when we're talking with the municipality and because they were coming into our events and they said, okay, you've saved so much, we need you to extend to other areas. But municipality is selling extend without money, without fund. Just go and extend. It's a good project, yes, well, save us thousands and millions of money for plumbing. And uh, they are people, the caretakers, they can't take the bags into the street because they're afraid when they walk up the street, it's not in their contract. Then it's going to have a problem. They have to cover for the accident, you know. So they're having all the nuisance uh, things, which you're helping someone, but it's telling you that because the blockages and the nappies, this, this caretakers was having when people come, they just throw everything, your pets, you know, condoms, everywhere. And when it's blocked, you need to put your hand into it and take it out as a caretaker. Now we thought it's, it's decent for them. Your dignity will be bringing it back. But now they said, no, it's not a part of their job. So who must do it? small project like us because we are working few days and that's we were funded now by idana idana you know it's an umbrella of all all the nappies uh, palo had to go to them and talk tell them that the nappies are giving us the problem they're giving us uh, the, the the thing then the idana said okay we'll fund you for a year also after this, they also received some funding from Lotto, which enabled them to educate the community more and help them to work into the river itself, restoring some of the indigenous plants. But despite the support they received and are grateful for, and despite all that they've accomplished, the team faced some serious challenges in 2019. At the time when Tozeka and I met, which was in October 2019, she was also a bit sad because of the state of the river at that time. She showed me a few photos on her phone and I could clearly see how the scope of the problem affected her. Lotto funded us also. That's where we're doing education awareness also and carrying on also with the nappies and also caring it about educating the people, uh, doing all the events, education research, which was involved also to Lotto that uh, monitoring, removing alien plants, because we thought that when we remove the alien plants, it's not easy to go into the river and remove alien plants. You need to plow back, you know, bring back what is lost. That was indigenous plants. We started doing ecology, you know, planting wherever we remove, we planted back the indigenous uh, plants and seeds so that at least the birds have to go somewhere because uh, the birds and everything which lives in the organism in the river, sometimes they go to lay eggs. Where are they going to lay eggs if you remove the alien plants? We started you know, doing that again, that let's do this. We're busy reporting over the manholes. We had a lot of manholes in a week. I think we had about 20 in, in a day. 
but it decreases to about three per day because when we were doing that, because we had a WhatsApp group which we have formed as Ala River, that the municipality people will be there, the water and sanitation, municipality, everybody was good. And we worked with the pollution chaser. And it really helped us because the pollution chaser went with us to the industries that wherever we were doing monitoring education, he went with us, that Mkholisikele went with us and check, you know, that they are polluting here. This is a kind, when we see the foam, we started taking pictures from the river that come, tell us what form is this. So he knew that what kind of a form was it. So we went to those factories who pollutes. And, but their fine is not much. They can be fined 5,000 rand by destroying everything which is there, you know. So it, it also made us very sad that you find a company which made millions and you think that they'll stop. They will never stop. They'll keep on polluting. So we found that the, uh, the, our bylaws are not very strict. Government doesn't have very strict uh, bylaws uh, to the river, that's why. And I don't know that he can see the danger or it's good when you talk about it, but you don't do practical about it. That's the main thing. There's a theory they'll tell you. Yeah. So we started doing that, but uh, now this year, uh, we don't have a funding. We're still having the small funding, which was for Idana. Our river is back to us. You go there, you find it's grey, and it pains us because we thought the government and other industry, they saw how hard we work. When I'm telling you that we used to walk in that river early in the morning to check, to monitor, to see. So it's back to us. It's back to us now. As we speak, we're only working with Idana and we the water centre wanted us to extend. Now we've got about 22 from another area. We added 20, 22 from another area and uh, in Kwashembe area is where we had beans also. We are busy now doing that um, training again, educating, doing our research uh, and putting now, luckily DSW had given us the bags but the, their bags are very thin because they're using this garbage, uh, you know. So it's not very strong bags. When you, also, it's still a challenge with the caretakers. They don't want to take the bags into the street. They said it's not the job. They want us because people think that when we are a project, we've got a lot of money. They don't know that it's, it's about a passion. And because we, we've got passion for the environment and we, we want to change people's behavior and not an easy thing. So they think that we can employ other people because they say this is, they, they call it, it's mine. Tozeka, they know me in, in the area. This is your, your thing, Tozeka. You have to employ people because wherever they see projects, they think that they're taking chances so that they have to be employed. Now they think that we can employ people to take those bags into the street. So it's not their, their job. And also the municipality say, yes, it's not their job. They can't do that. But we talked to the councillor. Our councillor, Spongsenim Kese, the one who's the chief whip now. Yeah, he's a very understanding man. 
and uh, they even the ward committees they said if you don't do that you need to change and have other people because now this is a new thing for us also as a community because we can't our toilets are clean now before you, even they would sit in the overflowing toilet a block toilet because you want to go and use your number two where are you going to go you can't go anywhere you need to go to the toilet so now at at least now they've got a dignity you know back to them which uh, the community has but we're still having that uh, problem with that, the challenging. We are still in negotiations with them. You are still, uh, every, even today, you're lucky you found me here. I always go to their meetings and tell them, whatever meeting they had, the war rooms, I'm going to the war rooms. And the workshop, of when they've got their workshop as a community, I go and talk about a project that, please, come with us. Let's work together to be able to solve. You can go now to Kwashembe, you'll find the river, because that was the river we were using, and 22 river, that was, I mean, uh, Ward 22 river, which was Ala. Now we are working with Umvozane river. It's filthy. Uh, Zimbo, let's bring that phone of mine. I have to show Usima. The river, it's dirty, and we are starting. Okay, you're showing me. It's worse when I said, Simone, it's a very difficult work. But because we said we need to be persistent, we need to pray. Here it was our, it was our, our, we were working with the kids, telling them that they must tell their parents. Here it was the waste which we had from that river. But I just wanted to show you the river, how dirty is that river. These are the ablution box. This is someone from, um, this is someone from, um, from environmental affairs. I'm working with him to show him the, the, the ablution blocks like, they're like this. There's the river. There's it. Oh. So whose work is look like a river anymore, does yeah, it? Not at all. You see Yo. you see how black is that? You see the inside when you go inside you find you find all sorts of rubbish. It's a dumping area. And that must make everyone sick. Yeah, it makes them, the children have rash, even when they inhale, you find that some, those who've got asthma, you find rats inside, you, 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 you find all kinds of diseases there. What stood out most for me about my meeting with Tozeka was her passion for the environment. At some point while we were chatting off air, she actually spoke about the beautiful noise that Hadidas make. She laughed when I said she must be the only person in the whole world who thinks that. Throughout our conversation, though, I could see the pride she had in the work they'd done for this river, how happy any positive change in the situation made her, and how desperately she wants this project to keep succeeding and to keep making a difference. The lack of funding that was preventing them from working more into the area really affected her emotionally. And that's not just because it would be great to give deserving people full-time employment. It's also because the environment is suffering because of it. 
She told me about the EcoChamps WhatsApp group and how the team monitor the area and report on it when they see anything suspicious or negative. They do this all of the time, even when they aren't working. The success and potential for even greater success of this project was obvious to me. The fact that the team cared about the work they were doing, that they took thousands of nappies out of the river and improved its health. After our conversation, I, I left, hoping that they would somehow get more funding, and soon too. When I met with Paolo, he mentioned that a lot of people are working into the rivers now because they've realized the importance of rivers in particular. Because, as he said, they are the lifeblood of an ecosystem. I had the great good fortune of meeting with another person who is making great strides in this area. His name is Cameron Service, and he is the founder of the Litterboom Project that is making a huge difference in Durban's Umgeni River. I was lucky enough to know someone who knew Cam, so we ended up getting together for dinner and chatting a bit more about his work into rivers and how that all started. Another small disclaimer, you may hear some cooking noises in the background here. Definitely, you know, I mean, you'll know as well as I do in the, in the non-profit space, it's all about a story. So it's incredibly important that you, um, you, you're creating a bit of a narrative and you're creating a bit of a, um, a purpose behind this whole thing for people to connect to. Otherwise, it's, otherwise, essentially what I'm doing is I'm saying I'm a, a rubbish collection company, which is actually what I do. But I'm not, and I need people to understand that there is a difference. So that's, that's where the story comes in. It's, there needs to be a, a reason and a motive behind what we're doing. Um, so I started, with, I started with the Litterboom project about two and a half years ago, which started off as a passion project where myself and a few, a few people, a few stakeholders were involved in setting up a pilot program in one of the tributaries of the Amgani River. And uh, the idea behind that really was to try to see if setting up these catchments was going to be a sufficient solution because a lot of, you know, a lot of the time I've spent a lot of time doing beach cleanups and I always found them to be incredibly ineffective. I mean, you, you end up leaving the beach more depressed than you were when you got there. But um, yeah, so I, I've always been keen to explore a new way and more, you know, more efficient way of doing it. And because I used to work within the green belts around the city, so I used to um, build mountain bike trails. So I've got a trail development company as well. So I know a lot of the, the rural areas that I now currently operate in. So I could see that there was a demand for some sort of interception or intervention method within the rivers because the rivers are horrific. So we set up this pilot program in order to see whether set, setting up these litter booms and creating a bit of a system and process on the back end of that would be a viable solution and whether it would be worth scaling essentially <coughs> into the other river systems and throughout South Africa. So we set up the project which was really cool and we started, well I started collecting data from this and within a year we'd probably removed with two staff that were, very, were temporary staff we collected about 15 tons of waste out of the one tributary. And obviously then I was like, well, this is, this is working. So it makes sense to, to, I mean, the idea was never to keep it in its containment. It was always to test it and if it worked to be able to expand it. So um, the other stakeholders that were involved were not really motivated in growing the program. So I pretty much deviated from there and established the Little Boom Project along with um, like two other guys, so the two big wave surfers, Josh Redman 
who stays in Durban, he's a big wave surfer, and then Frank Solomon, who's in Cape Town. So um, I brought them on board because I needed two influences, basically, <laughs> is the simple, the simple reason. Um, they're very well connected in the surfing community, so I thought it was a good way to, uh, certainly a good area to tap into because surfers are in the water and passionate about the ocean on, on most part. So, yeah, anyway, we, well, um, we established the company early, late last year. Um, and, yeah, from the beginning of this year, we were pushing for funding. And then we got a, because of the storms earlier on this year, we managed to mobilize a lot of people just through, through private donations, which was amazing. Um, we raised about 50, no, 65, 70,000 rand um, in a couple of weeks. And that was purely used to deploy teams onto the ground and collect stuff off the beach, which was, which was really amazing. And then off the back of that, often the way that it works is in, the, in times of crisis, you start to get attention. And so we capitalized on that. And one of the funding, our now primary funding entity, Parlay, a company based in New York, uh, interestingly, they they we'd been communicating with them a little bit and then once we once they saw the work we were doing they said that they wanted to be involved on a full-time basis so then they jumped on board early this year and they essentially uh, put money into the project and at the same time we formed a, a partnership with the guys at wildlands conservation trust and they've got a team uh, they've got I think they, through a program called the YES program, which is a youth development program, they deployed, I think it's close to 3,000 staff around the country. And, and they, they basically selected us as being one of the projects that they wanted to be involved with. So, um, so, they, they've got, so we've got 34 staff that work under the Litzabim project that I manage and look after. And um, yeah, and they, they, they basically work into our project. And then we, yeah, and then we started to sort of get more involved in, um, in community-based projects. And then we have regular beach cleanups as well. So the whole philosophy for me, or the three key components of the whole project um, are on three fronts. There's no point in us just putting stuff in the rivers forever because we need to start to change habits um, and consumer trends. So... We have the beach cleanups because we, we like to use it as an opportunity to chat to the consumer and try to change people's um, buying behaviors, which is, you know, a challenge. And then the rivers, are obviously our primary focus at the moment or our major focus. And then we've also got a project within the community um, at Source where we've got kids at two of our sites that are collecting waste and we collect once a month. And there's an incentive program there and we're busy rolling out like an academic curriculum which is sort of conservation and nature related and essentially for them to understand why we're doing what we're doing um, and that's another project that we're growing so there's those three components that we are working on concurrently but obviously you know i, I speak about the story again and at the moment um the litter booms and what we're doing there is creating the most waves in terms of the story. <clears throat> so, yeah, so we've got the guys from, uh, from Parlay who are involved in the project, but we've got a lot of um, really interested people, local corporates that are now um, keen to get involved. 
and also um, one or two other international entities that are also chatting to me about crowdfunding campaigns and all sorts of other things. I've been in the ocean all my life. I surf, I do spear fishing, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the ocean is iconic to, I think, most people that live in Durban. Otherwise, you could be living somewhere else. Um, so I just think it's such an important part of my life, and I just, I suppose the, the reason why I did something is because I could do something. Um, I could see it, and I had some practical solutions around me that didn't require an enormous amount of energy at the time, but was a way to sort of start the project and to see if it had legs. So it was very much a passion project, and I didn't expect anything from it. I just wanted to test this thing. So it's clear that the Litterboom project was born out of passion more so than anything else. I asked Cameron about his background, basically trying to figure out why he had the guts to do something about the problem that he saw. <laughs> My background. <laughs> well, I studied sports science and I've been building mountain bike trails for about 10 years. So it's a very different background. <laughs> um, but I suppose I've always been involved, I've always been working outdoors and in open spaces and um, and I've got some other projects that I'm busy with now at the moment as well. But I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about trying to get um, like Little Boom project out there. And and oh, the one thing I didn't mention. So the so the guys that are funding us from the states, the reason why they put money behind us is because they're very involved in a lot of other third world countries, and they're busy trying to develop a model and a template for other countries as well. So. You know, when I started chatting to them, I got very excited about using Durban as a um, as like a ground zero for developing um, a template and a model that we can replicate anywhere. So whether it's in Cape Town or whether it's in Dominican Republic, it, it, you know, developing a model that will it will be plug and play in a third world context. And um, and so I'm very excited about trying to develop that and. Um, yeah, and just getting more and more corporates involved, I suppose, because uh, I, I I seem to be doing a lot of like presentations and talks these days, which is not anything that I really thought I would be doing, but but it's great. I think a lot of people a lot of people are very unaware of what's going on, and so if anything, I think it, even even things like this, I'm always happy to do because the more people talking about it, I think the more momentum that we can gain uh, moving forward. So, so that's really the objective, is to try to create as much noise as possible. I'm kind of digressing here a little bit, but the, the beauty of a country like South Africa, um, uh, from a, and this is from an entrepreneurial point of view, is that there's so much opportunity, there's so much opportunity within an infrastructure that's a little bit chaotic and all over the show. And, and I think we all take advantage of it to some extent. You know, you might have two glasses of wine and drive home and that's fine because we're in South Africa. If you did that in Europe, you might not get away with it. So, so I think to some extent, we all take advantage of, of the looseness of South Africa and, and, you know, I suppose the detail around it. And it's given us the opportunity to do what we're doing because they haven't had that red tape. And now, and now I'm chatting with the guys at municipality and government who actually are happy to just let us carry on doing whatever we're doing. 
So sometimes it's a case of actually just doing something and waiting for resistance. And sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. <laughs> I think like we, we stay pretty optimistic though, because like, I mean, I see the, the good stuff that we're doing and you have to focus on the good work you're doing and not on the amount that you have to do because then you'll drive yourself crazy. And there's certainly a lot of positive to focus on. This idea Cameron had, to install something on the river that would collect the rubbish in large volumes, is actually collecting somewhere between 300 and 500 kilograms of litter per day. That's a significant amount of rubbish that is not ending up in the ocean because of his team's intervention. He gave me some insight into why this model works so well in KZN in particular. So, so KZN, what's unique about KZN is that um, we've got we've got the most uh, plastic polluting river systems just because geographically so down in the Cape you don't have a lot of river systems just because of the uh, you know the geographical location there and the topography so so we've got a huge concentration of two things um, of of people and of river systems and we have the coastline here so this is why it's such a critical place. If we can get systems implemented into, into KZN, then anything is, is easy to sort out. Then you go up towards Joburg, Gauteng, Pretoria, and you, know, you don't have an ocean there, so you've got a lot longer to try to deal with the problem before it reaches the ocean. So if we can get it right here, then again, but it's not to say in terms of in terms of the production and the amount of waste being generated, you know, the other other cities are generating as much. In fact, Joburg is worse. But and Joburg have a lot of those um, sort of informal sorting sites. But when you start to what starts to get very tricky um, in the waste space and the recycling space specifically is that there's a lot of non-recyclable waste. So it's all well and fair that you're doing recycling of your plastic bottles, like your PET and HDPE and LDPE and polyprop. And those are, your, those are your value streams. And even those don't have a huge value. It's all the other stuff, um, your polylaminates, that are, that are not being used. So people have this idea that they, they're throwing stuff away. But you need to remember there is no away with waste. It's got to go somewhere. So, so the thing is that no matter what you throw away, it doesn't go away. It's just sitting somewhere else. And until we start to find innovative solutions to those non-recyclable items, um, that's just increasing exponentially. And, you know, that's why like the, the, we've got a couple partners that are involved in creating innovation, uh, innovation solutions for recycling. Um, so creating like green bricks that are made out of recycled glass and plastic and um, pyrolysis machines where it goes into making diesel and, and those sorts of things. And so, so more and more of those solutions are trying to, are trying to de be developed by using the, non, the currently non-recyclable or non-valuable materials. So, um, so that's your challenge with any of your highly concentrated waste areas. But to, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, KZN is um, a massive contributor to plastic pollution. I mean, Komashu itself has 1.4 million people that live in one township. It kind of gives you context. If I've got four or five people working in the river system, 
it's like, you know, you really, it's like farting in the wind. <laughs> it really is doing nothing, like relative to how much waste is being generated. Um, and one of our biggest issues that we've got is that at the moment, um, government and municipality engage with uh, the Bucky Brigade, who essentially are informal subcontractors that go into the rural areas, collect their waste, and are supposed to take it to landfill sites. They don't take it to landfill sites because landfill sites have a fee to, to dump your rubbish there. So they just bring it to the rivers and they dump it into the rivers so that they can save themselves the money of taking it to landfill sites. So we're also dealing with that. So, you know, we're a conservation entity and specifically targeting marine plastic pollution. But because we work in the river systems, we are stuck between a failing waste management structure, a municipal waste management structure and marine plastic pollution. So, you know, on what that means to us on a day-to-day -day basis is that we're in the river and there is there are smashed glass bottles everywhere and nappies. Or, okay, nappies not a good, good example because we will remove those. Um, but like textile, like clothing and boots and, and, you know, now we're starting to collect that stuff, which makes it very difficult for us because there's nothing we can do with that. There's nothing our recycling partners can do with that. But it costs to remove that because there's a transport cost. So, you know, I have, I have to start asking myself the question, well, sh should I just be removing the stuff that's detrimental to the environment or should I be removing everything? And, and it's difficult because you want to clean it all up, but it's such an enormous job. This part of the conversation really made me think and helped me realize more about the magnitude of the problem. So despite the fact that they're managing to remove a huge amount of rubbish from the river, therefore keeping it out of the, the ocean, there are clearly still some complex issues that Cameron and his team are grappling with as they try to find solutions to keeping the river healthy. Sadly, it's not just as simple as collecting rubbish. I asked them what advice he would give the rest of us. How can we support their work? And how can we actually try to make a difference in our own small way? Even though he feels that we can definitely play a part, he doesn't put the responsibility to affect large-scale change squarely on the shoulders of those individuals who want to help. There's a lot of people that love to point fingers. You know, they're like, oh, the stuff, the manufacturers, or the government are failing us, or, hey, this, this shop, don't support this shop because they sell water in a plastic bottle. You've got to remember that there's, there's a story behind all of that. And, um, and there's also there's, there's a feasibility model and there's financial implications behind all of that as well. So I think that you know, the approach that we've taken is that we would prefer to have conversations with people where we can offer suggestions into coming up with better solutions. And I think it's, it's more about a collaborative approach where you're sitting around a table and discussing things rather than alienating yourself by going to social media and telling people how terrible they are without giving them the opportunity to rectify their mistake. So, yeah, I, I think that, that that relationship is very fragile and I think it needs to be dealt with a little bit more carefully. Because me going and saying something terrible about a coffee shop down the road without actually going there in person and saying, hey, listen, would you mind doing this? 
they're not going to respond well to it. <laughs> no one responds well to confrontation if they're not given the opportunity. But if there's, <laughs> but again, I, I can I can recycle because of that's the work that I do. The average person can't do that. But it's still it's still to say that you know to an extent I'm supporting the single-use plastics industry as well. So you know I could be a hypocrite, but I don't really believe that it's like that. It's more a case of reduce where you can reduce, and um, if you can't, then um, yeah, at at least try put pressure on people by small conversations. I mean, I sit in coffee shops a lot of the time. And I'm happy to tell people that they should stop using takeaway cups or they should stop using straws. Or, and you don't have to say it in a confrontational manner, but you can just suggest it. And if they don't listen, they don't listen. I kind of see individuals' value in converting their small group of friends to doing things in a better way. You know, making sure that they are basically using less single-use plastics. It's really as simple as that. The only way as consumers we can really make a, a big impact now is by just cutting down the amount of single-use um, plastics that we're using. So coffee cups and water bottles and it's basic stuff. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, got a, I've got a firm belief and a firm philosophy that I don't, not everyone needs to be plastic-free. We all just need to be making an effort. And if we're all making an effort and reducing like 30 or 40% of what we're using, you know, that is, is a compounding number that we can make sure that's a, a huge impact. And then we start to deal with figures that we actually can recycle. And then suddenly it becomes a feasible thing. At the moment, there's a huge demand on the, on the municipalities to deal with this ongoing problem of um, manufacturers creating more and more single-use plastics. So there's no, the onus is not on the guys creating more and more single-use plastic. The onus is on the government and the municipalities, which is actually unfair. These guys are making more and more money, and the government is more and more inundated with waste because now population's growing, and, and the number of items people are using is growing because everything is disposable. So, um, so it's also, you know, I, I'm close enough in the environment that, I, that I'm in the political landscape to, to understand the struggle that municipalities have with trying to, and this is global municipalities, well certainly within third world context, that it's a very difficult thing to take on if manufacturers are not coming to the party. You know, until, until they start taking more responsibility for the amount of plastic that they're creating, um, it's going to be a problem. And so hopefully the way that things are moving at the moment I suppose in my, the ideal situation for me is that um, that governments start to put more pressure on on manufacturers um, and on consumers because I think it's a it's a I think if you approach it from both sides it'll be more effective. It's the same way as the as they implemented costs on plastic bags. That was overnight. People went kicking and screaming. They didn't like it, but here we are. We all buy plastic bags. Well, not anymore, but. There's, there's a large part of our population that are happy to pay for plastic bags, which they were, were never happy to do. So, you know, if, we, if, we're changing, if we're changing laws in our constitution to say now plastic bags are like five rand a bag, people are going to think very carefully about whether they're going to buy a bag or not. And um, if, that, if that tax had to be imposed on top of a tax, a manufacturer's tax, 
then you know, they're going to be forced to have to look at alternative solutions to, to the problem. I hope this episode gave you a lot to think about. I also hope that it inspires you to start making those small changes each of my interviewees spoke about. Because if we all make those small changes, hopefully they can add up to something bigger. Finally, I also hope that there are some people out there who are listening and who feel that they have an idea, a possible solution, or even some resources that they could contribute to this fight. As I said last time, you can find more info about each of these conservancies on my blog or on Facebook, or you could contact them via their websites. The same applies to the Lithobrum project. If you Google them, their websites and Facebook page will come up. And that brings us to the end of season one. It's been so great sharing these South African stories of hope with you. Foundation was created by me, Simone Scott, with original music created by Wayne Charles Simpson. <laughs>